scenarios. Proud of those because between me and Google, we researched them today. Do you know that swimming with sharks is something you can actually do as a tourist activity in Hawaii? Yeah, I read a blog about it today. Anyway, actually, I had my own would you rather experience last March that also involved Hawaii. My would you rather was. I'm not married, by the way. Um, get on a plane and fly to Hawaii for a week on an all-expenses-paid vacation with over 100 married couples as one of three single women. The other two were in their 60s. <laughs> or stay in Lynchburg and do life as usual. So it's Hawaii, right? Like, you have to go. But, um, yeah, there were some real awkward moments. Like, you want to talk about feeling like the third wheel? It's like the third wheel times 100. Um, but anyway, we made the best of it. Uh, I made the, we tried to make the best of it, and um, it was a great week. But while we were there, unfortunately, um, we were there in March. So the bad thing about that was that the trade winds were really intense. So a lot of our activities that we had planned got canceled again and again because the trade winds um, just kept ruining things. So it was a lot of time at the resort. This was a company trip, by the way. Um, so you had a resort around water, right? But you're at a resort around water with your boss and your boss's boss, other sales reps. So all I have to say to you people is that if you ever get stuck on a company trip, take a million swimsuit cover-ups. So you can look casual, like you go for a dip, but you're also like, I'm not taking off anything in front of anybody. So that was what I did for most of the time. And, but our second to last day, this couple um, that I made friends with was like, listen, we're really sick of sitting around the pool. We found this thing on TripAdvisor. You can go snorkeling with some local person. It's like half the price of the resort activities. And so I was like, I don't know if it's a pity offer or not, but I'm going. <laughs> so we went, and it was like a six-hour-long boat trip. And it was great. It was fantastic. Um, well, afterwards, I felt fantastic about it. But in the moment, like, I've been waiting all week to actually get out on the water. And they take us out to the snorkel spot. And as we're about to get in the water, all of a sudden, my stomach started churning. And I was like, said to the guide, guy, I was like, uh, is there anything scary in this water? And he's like, well, you probably won't see it. <laughs> just lie, buddy. Like, just lie. So <laughs> people, we were, there were several families on our boat um, and then couples. And as people were getting off into the water, I was just thinking in my head, I'm like, you know, at least they have somebody else to notice that they get, like, picked off by a shark. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a while till someone's like, oh, where's that girl? So <laughs> in full disclosure, like, it's funny, but I was not in a funny mood. I was really genuinely petrified. And... Um, I kept kind of one eye on the boat and one eye on the instructor they put in the water on a surfboard just to keep an eye on us swimming and to keep an eye out for whatever scary things might be in the water. And so I would, like get, I would get out and kind of float around, look back at the boat, look at the instructor, float back toward the boat. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm in Maui. Like, I didn't come the whole way here to, like, cling to the side of a boat. Like, odds of getting eaten odds of seeing something cool. So eventually I started making my way out, and I put on the goggles and looked down, and I was like, Aah! and then, of course, 
from then on out, it got better and better because I started to get captivated by the coral and by, I was the first person to discover sea turtles swimming below. I was like, guys, come here! Then I had friends around me to see if I got snatched. Um, <laughs> but so that was really cool. Um, at the very end, a whale like flicked his tail not far from our boat, and I had been praying to see that all week too. Um, it, was just, it was just the coolest experience. Um, but the fear I felt was very genuine uh, getting into the water, and I can't even imagine those people who actually swim as sharks. Like, but that whole funny synopsis that makes for a good story now, for me anyway, it's a good memory, is very symbolic of what the Lord has done in my life and continues to do, because a lot of the girls who are sitting in here tonight, you guys know me pretty well, and so I have to be honest, it's not something that I have arrived on by any means. Um, But in light of that story, I want to mention that in my last year of graduate school, I finally was able to put words to something that I had struggled with my whole life, but never really knew what it was. Um, And it's not just me. There are over 40 million Americans who struggle with anxiety, and women are twice as likely as men. It's very closely associated with our gender. I actually found this article, um, and she was reciting some of the statistics, um, but she talked about, my struggle with anxiety has almost always been linked to my femaleness. It's closely linked to negative feelings about my body and physical attractiveness, dating irrational fears I'm going to end up childless or just all alone. Anxiety is responsible for my tendency to feel like I'm an an imposter when I'm trying to accomplish something professionally. Body image, love life, imposter syndrome, all characteristically feminine sources of worry. And I doubt that I'm the only one whose issues stem from the pressure that I feel to be perfect. I'm guessing there's at least part of that somewhere in there that you can relate to, like, a little bit. And I'm talking about fear tonight, but I want to bring up the word anxiety right off the bat because anxiety is something that we deal with day in and day out, and I think sometimes, at least I do, when I think of fear, I think of those, like, would you get in the water with the shark moments or the big presentation moments And I don't see the way that fear has colored a lot of other areas of my life in smaller ways until they built up into one of those big moments. Like, does that make sense? Um, And just given the statistics, I think anxiety is probably something that we all know about. And so um, my final year of grad school was the first time I ever, like, sat in my car hyperventilating and just, like, I didn't know why or what, but I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. And I remember calling my parents and be like, I don't know what a panic attack is, but I think I'm having one. I don't know how to make them stop. And that year, um, there were a lot of things going on that year, but um, that anxiety, it really took a toll on my family relationships. It was a significant part in ending a romantic relationship I was in. Um, It influenced how I looked for work when I was finishing school um, because fear kind of colors a lot of parts of our lives, and God didn't create us to live like that. But the problem for me is, and this is just my story, guys. This is not anything I came up with on my own. I just want to tell you my story tonight in hopes that it will 
help somebody else. Um, the problem is that there's like this beautiful scripture section on your handout, about Psalm 27, that says, The Lord it is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? But the disconnect between the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom should I fear, and I feel like I can't breathe, I'm very scared. Like, that's a big gap. Maybe you don't have panic attacks. Maybe you just worry a lot. Maybe you're fearful of something the Lord is leading you into. So how do you bridge the gap between the promises in God's word that were obviously very true for David and how you feel on a day-to-day basis? That's where I was at. So I want to talk about that tonight. And let's just pray first and ask Jesus to give the words. Jesus, thank you that your perfect love casts out fear. Thank you that you don't leave us where we are at. I ask tonight that it would be your words that come out of my mouth, that would represent all the ways um, you've changed my heart and continue to change it, and that um, as a community, God, we would keep this conversation going through the I Am series um, and continue to look to you for how you want to change us, um, starting, starting with just some of the basics. In Jesus' name. So, there are obviously good fears in life, right? Like, lions, tigers, bears, oh my. Um, there's a fear of getting hit in the street by a car. That's good. It keeps you from walking out in front of the car. Um, when you have little kids, you teach them to kind of fear strangers and to be skeptical. That's a healthy fear to instill in a child. You don't want them to get taken advantage of. Um, so we naturally have this protective instinct given to us by God to kind of keep us out of some life-threatening situations. But there are many others that creep in that kind of have nothing to do with health. So what is fear? Well, every time I think of fear, I automatically think of what-if scenarios because I think that's where it usually starts. At least it did for me. What if this? What if I lose this person? What if I don't make this performance? Um, what if I uh, mess up? What if, what if, what if, what if? You can lay in bed at night for hours on end thinking of all the ways a scenario can go. And at the end, you just have insomnia and nothing has been solved. When I'm afraid, I'm usually convinced that there is something that at the very least that could happen that would make me uncomfortable and at worst, like, utterly destroy me as I play out the scenario in my mind. But at the core of it, when I'm afraid, there's something coming or that might happen that I don't know how I would navigate, that I don't know what would happen, that I can't see past. And when I was in the middle of that really bad time in grad school, Remember a friend of mine saying that he, like more than anything else, he really hated fear itself um, because you can physically conquer a mountain. Or you can learn how to run a marathon. But fear is this mental and emotional and spiritual thing, and it only lives in your head. Like nobody else can see it, but you feel it all the time, and it is the most effective barrier to so many things like, it can, it can, like, control you 
and keep you detained far better than a brick wall can, because at least you could figure out how to climb that. Does that make any kind of sense? And so at the time I was like, well, that's an accurate description, but that's extremely unhelpful. <laughs> um, fear, it just kind of lives in our heads. And I think I want to make a distinction right off the bat. Throughout my prep for this, I kept talking about beating fear as like moving forward. But sometimes fear looks like um, you don't want to leave something or back away from something. Um, And there's also a really big difference between not doing something because you have sought the Lord and you are prayed and you just don't have a peace about moving forward into something. That's just wisdom and discernment. Saying yes to everything that comes down the pike just because it's an opportunity that's not living without fear, <laughs> this kind of stupidity, you know? So there's a distinction there. So I just, I don't want that to get misconstrued um, or to sound like, because I, I think that's a really, that's a really big theme, especially um, currently if you, like when I scroll people's Instagrams, like wanderlust and saying yes to things and the year of yes, that's fantastic. But I think God... I know God, at least in my life, wanted to show me more of who he is and what he has for me than just saying yes to everything and saying live without fear. Because it's not just about beating fear. It's about knowing Jesus more intimately and letting him change you and seeing what comes from that. Because when I felt trapped behind that wall of fear and anxiety in my head that I don't know how to get around, the most freedom has started with a thought that God can see past it, and he loves me, and there is something beyond that, and he's going he's gonna to take me there. I don't have to fight it myself. But where does that start? Well, actually, okay, so those unhelpful, no, they're not unhelpful. No scripture is unhelpful. If Dave Koontz hears this podcast, I didn't mean it like that. So in Psalm 27, it starts out really strong. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I still will be confident. I'll say he's confident. This was written by David. And David, like... I was one of the people when that scenario, and some of you guys were too, who picked that I'd rather travel to a foreign country than sleep in a tent in the woods overnight. I hate camping. And it's not because of being uncomfortable as much as it's like, a tent? What good does that do? There are bears. P.S. Where's Kate Waller? (laughs) Kate and I just went to Nepal together. If you really want to know what a wimp I am, what a champion she is, I have some stories afterward. One might actually come out during this talk. Anyway, I don't remember what I was talking about, so I can't do rabbit trails. Okay, Psalm 27. He comes out really confident and really strong. David was running for his life from Saul, was literally going to bed every night, knowing that he could potentially be like, in his sleep. And one night he actually got the opportunity to do that to Saul. Like, that's how close this was. His confidence that God was for him and on his side and his defense against fear wasn't just something that he spoke. And the more I looked at Psalm 27, it's incredible to me that David kind of lays out 
in reverse order how he got there. If we go on to read, let's see here. Though a war breaks out against me, I still will be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord, and it's what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. You know that verse that says, be still and know that I am God? That verse has been the most real to me when I am utterly exhausted from the mental circles I've been running over and over and over and over again, trying to solve problems that, frankly, I don't have answers to and I never will. And I've arrived just, like, depleted, and I think I'm still before God because I don't have any other options at that point. But sitting there and being open and vulnerable before him, that's where God has space to move. He created us in his image for us to need him, for us to talk to him, for us to be vulnerable with him. But it's really easy to mediate our problems in a million different ways. And David says that his one desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, gazing on him and seeking him in his temple. David didn't write that to be pious. He, he wrote it because that was his experience. And it was out of that vulnerability with God that he was able to claim the Lord is my light and my salvation. And so when we're practically talking about starting to address with Jesus our anxiety and our fear, that first step is just make room for God to move, make space for God to move by being vulnerable with him. And so in thinking about vulnerability, when you have, I, call, I think of them, I, think, I don't think it's my term. You know how people say you have 3 a.m. friends, like who you would call if you had to go to the ER at 3 a.m., or like who you call in a crisis? You can probably count those people on like one hand, right? Or I'm, I would assume so. Because when you have something going on like that serious that... Um, you call people that you trust. You usually want someone who knows you really well. And it's pretty rare that I would have, like, an emergency and call somebody I just met the day before and be like, hi, it's me, Emily. Do you mind coming down to the ER with me? Like, if someone does that to you, don't go. Or maybe take someone with you. But thinking about that, the people in your life that you really trust, that you go to, um, whether they're friends or whether they're family, that you, you trust them and they have access to you in that really vulnerable state and they're with you alongside of you because there have been so many moments and, and conversations um, that you have built up a relationship with them to where you lean on them in your moment of need, of weakness, whatever it may be. And I think... Well, I don't think, I, I know from experience, that's exactly what it has been for me. The first thing I ever had to do was be humble enough and need God enough to just sit there and be open and vulnerable with him. But the second part was just to talk to him. I, 
I don't know how many of you guys grew up in church like I did, um, but it can be, and even if you didn't grow up in church, after being in an environment where we talk about God a lot and talk about scripture a lot, it's not hard to have a verse for something. It's not hard when you're surrounded by, especially in Lynchburg, Christianity on every corner to kind of throw up like a cursory prayer here or there. But the things that you think about all the time, the thoughts that race through your brain on repeat, you just kind of, I start to assume God knows about them, and I forget to actually sit down and have a conversation like I would with my best friend. My friend Liz lives out in Colorado now, and she and I have always been able to just kind of pick up where we left off when we get on the phone. Um, And that's such a comforting thing to have that relationship. My feelings for Liz never change as her friend, but how helpful I am to her as a friend or how, how much I can speak into her life really depends on how much communication we've been in lately. Um, so if we've been talking on the phone a lot or texting a lot, I have a pretty good read, and I can, be, I can just be there for her when she needs me to be um, because that kind of keeps us, that conversation kind of keeps us intact. And I don't think it's different talking to God. He already knows. He's omnipotent, but that doesn't mean he doesn't want our conversation. God wants our conversation, not just because he wants us to surrender, but because he wants us to be able to trust him. So, about that Nepal trip. How many of you guys have an intense fear of bugs? Okay, that's not as many as I thought, so bear with me on this story. And some of you guys already heard this, so I'm real sorry, but it really made an impression. So, we traveled to Nepal... It has been, like, forever since we saw a real bed. We're really, really tired. And we get to this hotel. Katie and I are roommates. And apparently Dave and Jeremy had scoped out this hotel ahead of time. So it's supposed to be, like, better than the one they normally stay in, a little bit nicer, like, all around, solid pick. We knew exactly where we were going when we got there. Well, we get there, and we walk in, and it's kind of like, okay, this is four stars in Nepal. Okay. It's fine. We're so tired. I think I could have slept on the pallet on the floor. So we're in bed. I'm like out like a light. And I, I wake up to use the bathroom. And I, I think I had earplugs in, but I heard Kate saying, Emily, if you're going to the bathroom, don't step on the floor. Put shoes on. And it's like really groggy. I'm like, what? So at this point, I think I just landed on Kate's bed, like with her, trying to get off the floor. And I was like, what's going on? She's like, I just saw a cockroach this big crawl out of our room into the bathroom. And I was like, she's like, I thought, I hoped maybe you weren't afraid of them. (laughs) 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 No. I once called a guy to come get a dead cockroach out of my kitchen in Lynchburg. So (laughs) let me tell you, a live one in Nepal, woo. So I was like, are you serious? And then my next thought was like, oh, let it be 5 a.m. The night is gone. We don't have to try to go back to sleep with this. I'm like, what time is it? She's like, it's 10.30. It's like, oh, no. As we're sitting there debating what to do, 
there were shower shoes that I was going to wear to walk into the bathroom. Another cockroach, smaller, starts running around in and out of the shower shoes. Are you kidding? If you've ever done any research on cockroaches, you know if you see one or two, that means there's like an infestation. And it's like this, we couldn't do anything at that point. It's 1030 at night. I mean, so this is how we slept. And I think Kate might have slept differently if it was just her, but she was just really trying to accommodate for me at that point. We slept with all the lights on. I think I wrapped myself like a mummy in my sheet and put earplugs in because I also recently read a Washington Post story about a woman where a cockroach crawled in her ear at night and <laughs> earplugs. If you travel, wear earplugs, y'all. So that's how we slept. And my one thought was like, oh, Jesus, just get us through this night and onto the nicer hotels. And we get down breakfast next morning and we're telling it like a war story. And then Todd Foster comes down and he's like, informs us in a very nonchalant way that cockroaches are the standard in Nepal and it's not going to get any better. Like, that was just welcome to Nepal. To say that this made me a little anxious was not an understatement, mostly because I don't function well on less than eight hours of sleep and I didn't want to miss out on this trip because I was so sleep deprived, but I also like how... How, how, I mean, I had dreams about cockroaches just that first night. You know when you're like half in and out of sleep, but you're always kind of worrying about something at the back of your mind? Well, that was me. And so I decided that I didn't really have many alternatives at that point, so I might as well start praying about it. Guys, I prayed every night when we were in Nepal to, I I didn't pray that there wouldn't be cockroaches because that just seemed naive, but I did pray that Jesus would just keep them out of our room at night. And that if there were there, we just wouldn't see them. Like, God would just make us blind to any cockroaches. (laughs) And he did. Because Kate and I didn't see another one in our bedroom the rest of the week. And other people did. They even found little lizards. Somebody mentioned a lizard crawling across them in their sleep. We made it out alive. But to say that that was like one of the most real prayer requests that I was very passionate about in a long time, it's just accurate. And it's laughable, but at the same time, it wasn't. Because the same God who listens to me talking about the panic attacks is the same God listening to me talk about cockroaches. And I'm not kidding, you guys. I was really worked up. I was praying a lot about them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that changed. So in the grand scheme of things, cockroaches, panic attacks, like cancer and deaths, and like, I mean, the cockroaches are at the bottom, But when you are in a friendship with somebody, when you're in a relationship, you build on things. And that experience with God has been something that I keep looking back on when I think about needing to pray and talk to him and trust him with something else. If you surrender your life to God, it's unlikely that he's going to call you to Timbuktu tomorrow. It's unlikely he's going to ask you to face your biggest fear within 24 hours. He might. But the change in my life over anxiety and over fear has come from one conversation with God at a time, from asking him into one thing at a time. Sometimes it's just moment by moment, just getting my feet on the floor and doing the next thing and the next thing. But 
Jesus doesn't expect us to flip a switch. He doesn't expect us to read Psalm 27. He wants us to talk to him about cockroaches. He wants us to talk to him about work. He wants us to talk to him about our spouses, about our families, about our car problems. He wants it all because what he wants us to know is that he is trustworthy and that he is real and that he loves us. And because he loves us, he cares about all the little things and the big. Be ready to move. That is the big one. In some ways, I think of my relationship with God kind of like an investment in the fact that things, it, that my trust in him has continued to build and grow as I I've seen him in other people's lives, and it makes me want to move toward him, and then I've seen him in my own life, and it makes me want to move toward him. But as we say, like, be ready to move, like, be open to what God is doing, like, be ready to, be ready to see what he might do. I think it's really worth pointing out that the night before Jesus went to the cross, he asked God if it it pleased him to take away that cup from him. Sometimes I feel less than perfect because I don't want to do something. Like, oh, even if I'm going to obey out of obedience, even I'm going to move forward, I think, oh, if it was so-and-so, they weren't even giving it, like, a second thought. If I was a, you know, if I really trusted God, I wouldn't be scared. That's not true. That's not true. God doesn't ask us to be superhuman, but he does ask us to move forward in spite of it. Pride for me has shown up in a lot of different ways, and one of them has been control. Anybody else? And so when I'm afraid, it's often because there's something that I can't control, or I have looked at something that I think God wants me to move toward or step away from, and I'm like, nope, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm terrified of what might or may happen as a result of those actions, and I can't see any other alternatives other than the ones that I'm playing out in my mind. So I'm just going to kind of like hang out here and think about this and ruminate on it and get more anxious and get more fearful. And Fear is one of those things where it's like, oh, she's scared. But honestly, in my own heart, I also know it's a resistance to God. Um, it's a resistance to yielding to him and trusting that he is a loving father and that he's not going to ask me to do something because he's playing a joke on me, because it's a game, because he's going to flake out. That's not the God of the Old and New Testament it's not the God that you and I know, and he can be trusted, even as he leads us into really, really difficult things. But I don't know who that God is until I know that he loves me. And I think that's what John is getting at in John 8. It's on, sorry, it's on the front of your page. I made the font too big, and now it's double-sided. I'm sorry, guys. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. 
we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. That is quite a sentence. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Have you ever seen the word love so many times throughout a passage? Overcoming fear is intrinsically linked to understanding that God loves you and he wants you to love him back. Because when someone loves you and you love them back, you instinctively trust them. So when things come up, you can trust in the heart of a good and loving God. There are some of you in this room, there are probably a lot more than we're even aware of. And you've gotten the call that is not something exciting that you're scared about. It's, it's one of those calls that we all hope we never get. It's a diagnosis. It's a fatality. Um, it is a betrayal in a relationship. We are afraid. There are things that happen that it's worst case scenario. So, so how, do you, how do you reconcile that? Like, okay, Jesus, I, I want to step out in faith and trust you, and I don't want to be afraid anymore, but does that mean you're going to insulate me from all this stuff? Like, so I say I'm not afraid and I start to trust you, but then my, my mother gets cancer, but then my husband has an affair, you know, but then I, I lose a child. What was that whole business about not being afraid? And that's where, think of that moment in the ocean in Hawaii. The danger whatever danger there was with sharks, with scary things in the water, that did not change the entire time, whether I was in the boat or out of the boat. It, things were going to happen one way or the other. However, my perception of those events changed. I chose to engage in that moment to look at the beauty around me, to have a really cool experience with some sea turtles, to get to go underwater and like pop my ears and hear the whales talking. Things that I was like petrified to even do at first because I kept trying to keep myself close to the boat. The danger never changed the entire time. It was just what I did with it. And God doesn't promise us an easy life. And to say that we live without fear doesn't mean that we are confident that those worst-case scenarios aren't going to happen to us, that someone we love or something we love is going to change in an instant. But it does change our perception. It changes us, and it changes how we go through those events. Because sin is still really real, and brokenness is very real. But so is God, and that's where he wants our trust. And... Up this week in our I Am homework, I kind of skipped ahead a little bit, Crystal wrote about Esther. Because as much as I can stand up here and talk, 
it doesn't really do a whole lot without something practical to back it up. But, like, all the stories in Scripture, like Esther, for example, she lost people in her life, her parents. She went through some really insane stuff in the palace, and she could have easily lost her life. Plenty of people in the Bible did for the name of Christ, but God used her because she trusted in her God more than she trusted in the odds, and she was willing to do what it took, and there was this outcome that no one expected. Because even when the worst things, even when bad things happen, and our fears come true in a sense, that, that, that's not the end of the story. I know some of you are sitting in here older and wiser than I am who have lived through things that you could probably articulate this even, even better than I can. You have testimony to the fact that when the bottom falls out and you have to face your worst fears, you do find God in a whole new way. So maybe that's where you're at tonight. It's the really big things that you were like, asking God just to see you through, like the bottom did fall out somewhere along the line, and you would like to know how to tr- what does trusting God, what does moving forward look like? Or maybe you're back at the very beginning, and you're like, what is being vulnerable with God? Maybe it's just talking with him more. But I want to encourage you to just, if you can't do anything else, just ask God to show you who he is, what he has for you, and to lead you further into that trust relationship with him. Because that is where fear dies. That is where that mental wall finally collapses. And that's where freedom from fear and anxiety truly starts. There are some questions to just talk over with your group. First one is about being vulnerable with God. Um, the next one is about what movement he might be calling you to. So I encourage you to be vulnerable with people around your table and be honest. And then they're going to come up, the band's going to come up and close us out in song. So go ahead and discuss. <laughs>